Welcome back to Read Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMP LP, Louisville. Moving into fall with the Pulitzer Prize winning Wilmington's Lie, the murderous coup of 1898 and the rise of white supremacy by American journalist David Zucchino. Great episode. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 24 of Read and Succeed, getting right into it with an interview with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Zucchino at the University of Pennsylvania in February of 2020 about his 2021 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy, concerning the nearly unknown, or at least nearly forgotten, Wilmington Massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, on November 10, 1898, where an armed force-slash-mob of approximately 2,000 white Americans, ranging from members of the Wilmington Light Infantry, to common white citizens to a local Ku Klux Klan ally known as the Red Shirts, descended on a then-majority black city of 25,000 as it reached a zenith of prosperity, plurality, and overall black joy relative to the rest of the Reconstruction-era South, and armed with torches, clubs, small arms, and even a Gatling gun taken from a local armory, went on a day-long rampage of arson, assault, murder, and theft that left at least 14 black citizens dead by the insurrectionist count, estimated at around 300 black citizens dead by professional historians, and drove a approximately 2,000 black professionals and any of their northern allies out of town. A new white government was installed the next day, and all symbols of black success and autonomy, most importantly the local newspaper building, were destroyed, followed by a campaign of voter suppression that didn't allow Wilmington to return to any of its pre-coup political representation until the 1970s. Worse yet, no plotters or participants of the coup were ever held accountable at any level for their actions. Worse still, the violence at Wilmington in November of 1898 was quickly euphemized in media at all levels, from massacre to insurrection to coup to race riot to riot, to simply a municipal disturbance in a matter of months. Worst of all, however, the entirety of what later became the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 was publicly advertised in the social media of the time, i.e. speeches and pamphlets, by insurrectionist leaders for months even down to the date of the coup in a convention in late October where they specifically and officially named their coup agenda with the phrase used formally for the first time in recorded American political history. The title of their agenda was, quote-unquote, white supremacy, and the core thesis of Mr. Zucchino's text, who is himself white and who published it a year before the predominantly white January 6, 2021 United States Capitol attack, is what he claims most, if not all, of the black Americans he interviewed for the book already know. When one hears nascent rumors of violent white supremacy on the horizon, it's not a matter of if it will happen. The reality is it already has. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
All right, everybody, thank you for coming. My name is Dick Pullman. But that's all preliminary to, uh, to our guest today, uh, who um, has written, I think, an incredibly important book, uh, which I just told uh, David it should really be a, a seven-part miniseries on HBO, uh, if nobody's thought of it yet. Uh, but it's an incredibly important book that fills in a crucially missing piece of history, as so often is the case uh, in, in our country where we're a little bit uh, uh, purblind about uh, race. Uh, and um, I'm going to leave it at there and let him fill it in. But uh, David is um, uh, a former uh, uh, Philadelphia Inquirer foreign correspondent where he won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I think the Philadelphia Inquirer is where we first met. Yep. Um, subsequently, the Los Angeles Times uh, doing work uh, stories overseas. And he's currently uh, a uh, contributing foreign correspondent, if we can call that, for the, at the New York Times, spending a lot of time cycling in and out of Afghanistan. So, uh, uh, and he's the author of two previous books, but he's here to talk about Wilmington's Lie. Uh, please welcome uh, David Zucchino. All right, thanks, Dick. It's great to be back here, and I'll talk about 20 minutes on the assumption that uh, probably no one here has read the book, and I'll talk a little bit about the book, and uh, then we'll open it up for questions. Um, I like to start out usually by asking uh, how many people here, if anyone, had ever heard of the events of 1898 of the Kuhn massacre before you came across this book? Zero, right? Okay, well, that's, that's, pre that's pretty typical. Um, even in North Carolina when I give talks, probably two-thirds of the audience had, had never heard of this. And I have to admit, I had never heard of this uh, until about 20 years ago, and I went to high school and college in North Carolina. Not one professor or teacher ever brought it up. It wasn't in the history books. Um, when I was a freshman at uh, UNC in Chapel Hill, uh, they stuck me in Morrison dorm. And I had no idea who this guy Morrison was, and, and I didn't care. Somebody said he was a governor. Well, years later, as I'm researching this book, I find out he's a character in my book. He was one of the leading speakers on, during the white supremacy campaign during the summer of 1898 that led up to the coup and massacre. Uh, while I was a student there, I went to football games at Keenan Stadium. Uh, any football fans might have seen it on TV. Uh, I didn't know who Keenan was, didn't care again. And the same thing, years later, he becomes a character in my book. He was the leader of a machine gun squad that went through the streets of Wilmington on the day of the coup in November of 1898, uh, murdering black men. When I left college, my first job uh, out of journalism school was at the News and Observer newspaper uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the capital. And the founder of that paper was a man named Josephus Daniels. And in the newsroom, um, there were all these tributes to Daniels as this crusading journalist. And he went on to become Secretary of the Navy, Ambassador to Mexico. But I worked there almost five years, and no one ever mentioned that he was the leader of the white supremacy campaign and led the propaganda campaign uh, that led up to the coup, and in fact, he called the News and Observer at that time the militant voice of white supremacy. Uh, today, on the campus of uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, the student stores named for Josephus Daniels to this day. Uh, according to the campus newspaper, there are almost 30 buildings on the campus named for white supremacists, and many of them uh, were part of this 
uh, white supremacy campaign of 1898. So I, I just bring all this up just to sort of make the point that this isn't really ancient history. This legacy is, is very much alive, and, and this story has been following me around my whole adult life, and I didn't know it until a couple of years ago when I started on this book. Uh, people who have read the book usually have two questions for me. One is, how could I not know about this? And the second question is, how could this happen in the United States of America? And my answer is that this is basically a buried chapter of not only of North Carolina history, but of American history that was really covered up and, and mischaracterized for well over a century. Um, let me, uh, and it also took, uh, took place at a time when white supremacy, not, in North not just in North Carolina, but across the South, was unchallenged uh, right up to the White House, as you'll see if you read the book. Um, let me give you a quick rundown of, of the book, just a summary. Uh, in November of 1898, uh, white supremacists overthrew a uh, multiracial government in, uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they killed at least 60 black men, maybe, maybe more. No one knows how many people died. They wounded dozens more. Uh, they burned down the black daily newspaper. They evicted the city leaders at gunpoint, and they appointed the mob leaders as mayor, police chief, sheriff, city aldermen, and so on. And they banished the blacks they didn't kill. Um, they banished, they took the leading black politicians, lawyers, and doctors, uh, basically the educated class, uh, and marched them to the train station along with uh, leading white Republicans who had combined uh, with black Republicans to, to form the city government. They marched them to the train station, put them on the train, and said, if you ever come back to Wilmington again, we will shoot you on sight. And not one of them ever returned. Now, you can imagine uh, on this day, this, this coup and this massacre went through most of a day in, in November of 1898. And you can imagine what this must have been like for the black families. Uh, they were terrified. Hundreds of them just ran from their homes and fled the white gunmen. They went into swamps. A lot of them went into a black cemetery thinking uh, the white gunmen wouldn't go there. Um, after uh, two days, uh, three days and two nights, they finally felt safe enough to return home, but just long enough to pack up their possessions and flee Wilmington. In, in the days and the weeks after the massacre, uh, more than 2,100 black people fled the city and never came back. And to me, what's really, really hard to believe about this whole episode is that no one was ever punished for, for these murders and for this violent coup. Uh, no one was prosecuted, indicted, much less uh, spend any time in jail. And it's also hard to believe that the white supremacists announced this all ahead of time. Well, in the spring and the summer and the fall of 1898, they announced that they were going to take over Wilmington by the ballot or the bullet or both. Uh, they said they were going to do it, and they did it. And the whole nation was watching. Because they announced it, all the major newspapers of the day sent their, their white correspondents down to Wilmington to cover what they called the race war. New York Times, Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer was there, Baltimore Sun, uh, papers from Atlanta and Charleston, uh, all over the East Coast. And when these journalists would arrive in Wilmington at the train station, the white supremacists would meet them there, and they'd give them cigars and whiskey, and they'd arrange their lodging. And to use a modern term, they would, quote, embed them with the white gunmen. They had set up a, basically a military camp around Wilmington with armed sentries everywhere. And these guys would take the journalists around and, and fill them with the white narrative of what was happening. And that narrative was that first, uh, all the blacks in town were plotting a riot and stockpiling weapons and planning a riot for the election, when in fact it was the whites who were stockpiling arms and planning a riot. 
And secondly, they said uh, African Americans were, were ignorant and they weren't intelligent enough, intelligent enough to vote, much less hold office, and we have to remove them. And I am sad to say that uh, many of these northern newspapers re repeated that narrative in their stories that they filed back. So most of the country had this, even before the coup, had this white supremacist narrative of what was going on. Uh, for more than a century, what happened in Wilmington was called a, quote, race riot. Uh, it wasn't a race riot at all. It was a racial massacre. I mean, it was a planned murder spree. Um, as you know, there have been uh, many other so-called race riots in our history, uh, both in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century, but uh, most of these were spontaneous outbursts of, of white rage, usually related uh, to some sort of contact between a black man and a white woman. Wilmington was completely different. It was premeditated. It was planned over a period of months. It wasn't spontaneous at all. Uh, really, it was the, by far, the most complete and successful violent overthrow of an elected government in American history. There, there's not been anything like it before or since. Uh, people often ask me, why was Wilmington such a threat to white supremacists? Uh, I think it's because it was a true outlier in the South. It, it was unique among Southern cities. Uh, it, uh, first of all, had a black majority. It was 56% black, but more importantly, it had a multiracial government. You had blacks in position of authority. Uh, 10 of the 26 police officers were black. Three of the uh, 10 city aldermen were black. There was black magistrates and lawyers and doctors. The county treasurer was black. Uh, the county coroner was black. And this was just an intolerable situation to the white supremacists who were used to running the city. And uh, they were not going to let it stand. And their goal was not just to overthrow the multiracial government. They had a much broader goal, and that was to deny uh, blacks the right to vote and the right to hold public office forever. And by those standards, they were incredibly successful. In 1896, there were 126,000 registered black voters, 126,000. Six years later, in 1902, the number was 6,000. And it went down from there. And in fact, blacks did not vote in North Carolina in any significant numbers from 1898 until after the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So that's 70 years when they just didn't vote, only in tiny numbers. Uh, the coup also turned a black majority city into a white supremacist stronghold. In 1898, as I said, Wilmington was 56% black. Today, it's 18% black. Uh, in 1898, America had exactly one black congressman, an entire Congress, and he was from North Carolina. His name was George Henry White. And he represented a district in eastern North Carolina that was adjacent to Wilmington. He spent a lot of time in Wilmington. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, the, the prospect of a black man representing North Carolina in, in Congress was intolerable to the white supremacists, so they harassed Congressman White and his family. Josephus Daniels in the News and Observer many times used the N-word in editorials uh, to describe uh, uh, to Congressman White. Uh, he finally uh, left North Carolina. He announced uh, to, in an interview with the New York Times that he wasn't going to run for re-election in 1900. And he's, his quote was, I cannot live in North Carolina and be treated as a man. He left and he never came back, but he did found Whitesboro, New Jersey uh, as a town for, for people fleeing the South, black people fleeing the South. Um, after he left office in 1900, no black citizen from North Carolina served in Congress until 1992, almost a century later. It's just amazing. 
And after those three black city aldermen were evicted at gunpoint in 1898, no black citizen served on the Wilmington City Council until 1972, which really wasn't that long ago. For those who joining us, this is a February 2020 interview with American journalist David Zucchino about his winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy. The moderator for this event is Dr. Richard Pullman, Pulitzer Writer-in-Residence at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. The coup also installed white supremacy and Jim Crow as official state policy in North Carolina for almost 50 years. It also inspired white supremacists across the South. I'll just give you one example. In 1906, there was a statewide election in Georgia, and the white supremacists there were trying to figure out how they could uh, suppress the black vote and intimidate blacks against voting and to steal the election. The first thing they did was consult with the white leaders in Wilmington on how to do it. And there was a man named Hoke Smith. He was a candidate, and he was actually elected governor. He was a white supremacist. After he met with the white supremacists in Wilmington, his quote was, we can handle the blacks the way they handled them in Wilmington, where the woods were black with their hanging carcasses. So you can just see the the impact that this this event had on, on other whites across the South. Now, their main weapon uh, was a fake, in North Carolina, was a fake news campaign led by Josephus Daniels at the News and Observer, who planted phony stories about blacks to incite whites to attack them and prevent them from voting. At the time, almost 25% of the white population was illiterate, so Daniels figured out a way to reach them by hiring a political cartoonist who drew these really race-baiting, horrible cartoons, and some of them are reprinted in the, in the book, to get to illiterate whites and to explain to them the tenets of white supremacy. Now, the whites had fake news, but they also had their own uh, militia. They had a uh, white supremacist militia. These, these people were called the Red Shirts. They were basically an outgrowth of, of the Ku Klux Klan. And their job during the summer and fall of 1898 was to ride through the Cape Fear countryside outside Wilmington, burst into black homes at nights, drag out black men, beat them, whip them, and tell them if they dared register to vote, they would come back and kill them. And this had, a, as you can imagine, a terrorizing effect on the black population and really reduced the, uh, the black vote. Now, on election day, uh, the red shirts went through town and tried to intercept black men who worked up the courage to actually try to vote, and a few blacks did vote, but they, the rest were just terrified, and uh, the whites stole the election not only by intimidating black voters, but by uh, sending the red shirts to break into uh, polling centers, knock over the lamps, and in the darkness they would stuff uh, phony Demo- Democratic ballots into the ballot box and destroy the Republic ones, and in several precincts the quote, winning Democratic candidate had more votes than the total number of registered voters in the district. So you can see what, what, the, what was going on. Um, I should, have mentioned, should mention also that the city election uh, was not part of the uh, federal and state and county elections. City officials would not be, run for re-election until, until the following March. But the white supremacists weren't willing to wait that long, so they planned the coup uh, for two days after the election. Now, uh, in addition to the red shirts, the, the, the basically the vigilante militia, uh, the white supremacists had two state militias. There was the Wilmington Light Infantry and the, the Naval Reserves, and these were state militias. They were basically the National Guard of the day. They were supposed to report to the Republican governor in Raleigh, but in fact, they were commanded by white supremacists and made up of white supremacists, so they reported to the coup leaders. 
During the summer of 1898, the white merchants raised $10,000 to buy uh, the latest and most lethal, uh, they called it a rapid fire gun. It was a Colt, it was an early machine gun, and it fired 420 rounds a minute. And on election day, they brought this gun out for use against the black majority. Uh, you have to remember this uh, was the summer of 1898, uh, and it was the Spanish-American War. So these two white militias were called up for service in the war, but the white supremacist leaders made sure they were back in Wilmington in time for the coup, which they had scheduled, as I said, two days after the election. So uh, that meant, because these men were still in federal service, these were US soldiers, they hadn't been mustered out yet, and that meant American soldiers were killing American citizens on the streets of Wilmington with impunity. Uh, there were also black units uh, from Wilmington who volunteered for the war uh, in 1898, and they too were sent to fight in the war, but the white supremacists made sure on the day of the coup that they were still stuck in Georgia at a training camp hundreds of miles away, so they had essentially left uh, uh, the black community defenseless. Um, there were defenders of the black community, and my favorite character in this whole book is a man named Alex Manley. Uh, he was the publisher of the, of the Daily Record, which called itself the only Negro daily in the world. It wasn't, but it was one of the few. And he was an amazing, amazingly courageous guy. He challenged white authority in print. Uh, he basically demanded in his columns and his stories that the United States live up to its promises of uh, equal rights and citizenship for the freed slaves under the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Now, in August of 1898, he wrote an incendiary editorial about race and sex that nearly got him lynched. And this uh, editorial was in response to a woman named Rebecca Felton, who was a well-known uh, woman, a wife of a, um, a congressman in Georgia who used to give a lot of uh, racist speeches. And then she gave one speech in Georgia uh, that said the solution of these supposed uh, 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 rapes by black men of white women was the lynch rope. And her quote was, I say lynch a thousand times a week if necessary. Uh, as, as you can imagine, the white newspapers in Wilmington immediately repeated this, uh, re republished it, and Manley responded uh, with an editorial. Uh, and he wrote that many black men lynched for supposedly raping white women were in fact their consensual lovers. And he also pointed out what was true across the South that white men raped black women with impunity. Uh, I just want to read a brief passage. It was a pretty long editorial, but I want to read a couple lines from it just to give you a sense of uh, what Manley was like. Quote, every Negro lynched is called a, quote, big, burly, black brute, when in fact many of those who had thus been dealt with had white men for their fathers and were not only black and burly, but were sufficiently attractive for white girls of culture and refinement to fall in love with them as is very well known to all. Let virtue be something more than an excuse for them to intimidate and torture a helpless people. Tell your men that it is no worse for a black man to be intimate with a white woman than for a white man to be intimate with a colored woman. You set yourselves down as a lot of, harping, of carping hypocrites in that you cry aloud for the virtue of your women while you seek to destroy the morality of ours. For those who joining us, this is a February 2020 interview with American journalist David Zucchino about his winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy. The moderator for this event is Dr. Richard Pullman, Poets Writer-in-Residence at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Um, 
you think that uh, a major event like this um, would be covered, at least in the North Carolina school history books, the textbooks. Um, in fact, it was barely mentioned. And when it was mentioned, um, it was portrayed as a heroic white response to a black race riot and a, quote, good government by honest white men uh, to replace corrupt, quote, Negro rule. And I just want to read a few brief selections from uh, public, these were public textbooks published by the state of North Carolina for school kids. One is from uh, 1933, and these are in the book. Quote, there were many Negro office holders, some of whom were poorly fitted for their tasks. This naturally aroused ill feelings between the races, end quote. Here's another one from a school textbook from 1940. Quote, the mass of Negroes became poor citizens. To keep their vote, the carpet beggars and scalawags allowed them to do very much as they pleased. The worst crimes were not punished. The white people of the South were no longer safe. Uh, this next one is from a 1949 textbook. Quote, a number of blacks were jailed for starting a riot, and a new white administration took over Wilmington's government, end quote. And finally, this is astonishing. This is from a 1940 textbook that told school, school kids about why we needed the KKK and the red shirts. Again, this is what was taught to kids, and there are people alive who studied this in 1940. Quote, to put an end to this terrible condition, white people joined together in a sort of club, which they named the Ku Klux Klan. Members dressed as ghosts and scared lawless men into acting decently. On moonlit nights, these men could be seen on horseback, riding to bring order back into the lives of their people. Such sights frightened Negroes into living better lives. The names of these men, Negro or white, who had done wrong, were listed. The next moonlit night, the Klan would visit these men and punish them according to the wrongs they had done. After this, lawless men were not so bold, and crime became less and less. And on that wonderful note, I'll wrap up, and uh, maybe we can have some questions, get a discussion going, and I think Dick's got a couple of questions for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what can I say to that? Um, a couple, com uh, just one or two comments and then a question for you. Um, one comment that I want to make, one of the first things I noticed actually is that uh, this is, uh, there's a lot of narrative power to the way uh, David wrote this book and um, any of you should be, um, to look at it, you'll notice the very opening sentence of the entire book, which reads in part, um, the killers came by streetcar. Their boots struck the packed clay earth like muffled drum beats. Uh, and I noticed that because it, it kind of reminds me of uh, the way we used to be trained to write uh, openings at the Philadelphia yeah. Inquirer, uh, you know, for, for big Sunday stories, which was, you know, to have put the reader right in the moment, in the middle of the scene, have you see and hear uh, what's going on. So that was just a comment. You can comment on that if you want. But okay. uh, the question I really had uh, was, so you didn't, you grew up not knowing anything about this when you were Nothing. in schools. Fortunately, you didn't have these textbooks. Um, <laughs> but um, so um, when... Uh, and to what extent uh, did you first hear about this buried history? Uh, Two-part question. That's okay. the first part. Okay. And the second is, um, uh, having learned about it uh, and been, like, struck by it, um, how and when did you first pitch it to a publisher? Right. 
I was astonished when I first heard about it. I remember it very well. In 1998, uh, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington started holding centennial events in Wilmington, trying to, to bring blacks and whites together after 100 years of this buried history, this, this false narrative, the lie in the title. And they brought descendants of both the blacks and the whites together and really uh, achieved a, a measure of uh, reconciliation. They actually uh, got a, a monument put up uh, to, the, to the dead with uh, a description that gave the true, what gave the true facts of what really happened rather than the, the race riot that it was always called. They call it a, a coup and a massacre. And I read about this in the papers. And it, this was, again, 1998, the first I had ever heard about it. And I was stunned, first of all, that I didn't know about it, and second of all, that this could happen in the United States. And I was fascinated by it, and so I started reading up on it. And I realized there hadn't been a book. There had been one academic book uh, back in 1984 uh, by a scholar in Tennessee, but it didn't get much national attention. And I said, there's got to be a book here. Um, I, I was busy in my real life as a journalist and, and really didn't have time until the last three years uh, to start digging into it. And my agent pitched it to a lot of people and there was zero interest. I mean, this is an ancient event. Like, who cares? It happened 120 some years ago. Nobody's ever heard of it. Didn't have much luck until I went back to my publisher at uh, Grove Atlantic who had published a previous book of mine, a man named Morgan Entrenken, who's very well known. Uh, I wrote a terrible proposal. He didn't like it. And he said, this, this proposal's awful, just talk to me. And so I tried to explain what it was about. He's from Tennessee. And he said, I've never heard of this. I should know about this. People should know about this. So he took the book <laughs> All right. after, after some work. One more quick question. Then I want to make sure you guys uh, get in on it. So um, in, the, in the research, and the reporting, because you did talk to some people. Yes. Um, I'm just curious what you thought was perhaps some of the most surprising mm -hmm. stuff. One of them, at least for me, was that this editor, uh, this black editor, uh, Manley, Alexander mm -hmm. Manley, wound up when he left town. He wound up living uh, in a um, in a part in a building at 11th and Walnut here in Philadelphia. Yep. Uh, like in some kind of roof apartment? Rooftop, yeah. You couldn't get one inside because he was, he was black. Right. So 11th and Walnut, and he became the part-time janitor of this building. Correct. 11th yeah. and Walnut. So that struck me as very surprising. Oh, but yeah. Would you put that in your top two or three? Uh, yeah, that, that was very, very interesting. Um, he barely, barely got out of Wilmington alive. In fact, the, the day of his editorial, the red shirts mounted up and had a, 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 a lynch lynch mob ready to lynch him and to show you how planned this was and how carefully orchestrated it was the white leaders said no not yet because we can time this for maximum political impact if we wait this was in august if we wait till november and we promise you then you can lynch manley and you can burn down his newspaper which they did but manley uh got a warning from a, a white friend, uh, he was never identified, I believe it was a white minister, who gave him uh, $25 in gold coins and gave him the password that you needed to get through all these uh, uh, red shirt checkpoints. They had surrounded the city and militarized it. And uh, Manley was the, the grandson of a white governor. Uh, his picture's in the book, and he could have easily, quote, passed for a white man, which a lot of mixed race people did at that time. He adamantly refused. He lived his life uh, as a proud black man. 
Uh, and But because he had a Caucasian appearance, it helped him escape. And then he went briefly to Washington, but then he came to Philadelphia, lived here 40 years. He, uh, as Dick said, he got an apartment with his wife uh, at 11th in, in Walnut. And uh, in addition to being the building's janitor, his first career has been, had been as a house painter. He started uh, applying for jobs as, as a house painter, and people assumed he was white. And this really, he was really conflicted about this, and after a while, he finally stopped taking advantage of it and told people he was black, made it harder for him to get jobs, but he did. Um, they moved to an Irish neighborhood, and I couldn't find out where it was. I would love to know where it was, somewhere in Philadelphia. Everything was fine because his white neighbors assumed he was white, and his wife was his servant. So everything was cool. But when they found out that he was black and they were married, they put up a spiked fence between his house and theirs. So he was not very well received, but he, for the next many, many years, helped found the Armstrong Association with a, a, a Quaker from Philadelphia. And they did, for several years, um, they found young black men who, like Manley, had fled the South and uh, trained them in industrial jobs and found jobs for them. And this uh, morphed into the Urban League, and the Urban League chapter in Philadelphia was started by Manley. He was the executive secretary, I think, and ran it for many years. And uh, he died in 1944 and is buried in, in Willow Grove. And as I say, he's my favorite character in the book. As a journalist, I really, really admired his, his courage. For those just joining us, this is a February 2020 interview with American journalist David Zucchino about his winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy. The moderator for this event is Dr. Richard Pullman, Pulitzer Writer-in-Residence at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Well, that should probably prompt some questions, that and everything else we've been talking about. So please, uh, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. That was so interesting. Um, has you. there been an, a reaction from the community of the Wilmington vis-a-vis -vis your book? Could you yes. talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I gave a talk there two weeks ago at the public library. And for some reason, they put the talk up on the third floor in a little room with 50 seats. Now, remember, Wilmington's in the title. You would think if there was one city in the country where people might come out, it was Wilmington. Well, 350 people showed up, <laughs> squeezed into some rooms outside. They had to turn 100 people away because the fire marshal said, we can't fit anymore. They stuck them off in rooms and tried to set up a speaker system. Anyway, that shows you the level of interest. Now, I was anticipating uh, at least some white pushback from white nationalists, whatever you want to call them, saying, why are you dredging up this ancient history? You're, you're just creating ill feelings uh, between the races. Uh, just, just let it die. Let's just get over this. But I got none of that. Now, in part, the, the talk was sponsored by the NAACP chapter down there. So I had a very friendly audience. I didn't get the, the white viewpoint, which is very much there. And in fact, in 1998, things were going pretty well on reconciliation until the black descendants brought up reparations. And then that split the community again. While I was giving this talk in, in the Q&A, many African Americans got up and told me just chilling stories about what they had heard from their grandparents about what had happened. And they also mentioned reparations. And we had a pretty enthusiastic discussion about it. But that's been the reaction. I have not 
surprisingly had any pushback, like through email or through newspaper columns or anything, from from whites, you know, saying, you know, let's not dredge all this up. But I, I'm certain the feeling is there. I just I just haven't gotten it. Um, I'm curious to ask you um, if you've had any pushback in the opposite direction, um, um, apropos of the controversy about the Amer American dirt and other um, works of art that have been accused of cultural appropriation. Um, have you, as a white man, yeah. experienced mm -hmm. any of that kind of feedback? And what is your comment right. about that? Yeah, I was expecting it. I really was. I was, I, mean, I just assumed there would be several people who said, why is a white person telling this story? Well, if they had asked me, I would have said, well, Half of this story is about white supremacists, so by that logic, then only a white supremacist could have written this book. Um, I certainly agree that any, any African-American journalist or historian, uh, historian or scholar could have written a great book about this. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the only one who, who could have written it. In fact, uh, two of my best, best sources for this book uh, were African-American scholars. There was one woman named uh, Helen Edmonds, who was a scholar at uh, NC Central University in Durham. And in 1951, uh, she wrote a dissertation called The Negro and Fusion Politics, and she was the first scholar to expose the truth. She wrote the true story in an amazing dissertation. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which was all white at that time, uh, published it in a book, and this drove the guardians of the Wilmington legacy in Wilmington crazy. Uh, the whites there on the Historical Commission wrote this scathing letter to uh, UNC saying, how could you publish something like this from a, quote, negress? That she's uh, not intelligent, she doesn't have the capability to write something like this. Everything she wrote wa was false. but. That was a great source for me. Uh, it was very detailed, and I got a lot of, uh, of leads on, on places to go to find documents. And, and the second scholar was a man named uh, Prather, Dr. Prather in Tennessee, who wrote the book I mentioned called uh, We Have Taken a City. But again, this was more of an academic work and, and didn't get a lot of attention, but it had incredible research and details. So African Americans have written about this. And I don't think they got the, the credit they deserve, but um, I cite them at length in the book. Hi, thank you very much for coming and for oh, thank you. talking to us about this. Um, I just, you know, in listening to you, I was tremendously struck by the, the comparison uh, today with that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if people have, you know, asked you about that uh, because, I, you know, to me, I, I went to school in North Carolina. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I went to UNC Greensboro because mm -hmm. I was in creative writing. And, um, you know, it, uh, it, it's, I, it's not just North Carolina. Oh, know? no, no. It's all over the United States. And, in fact, you know, we always kind of, you know, I remember saying, well, uh, or being told that the strongholds of the Ku Klux Klan are actually in York, PA, and in San Diego, and in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just, you know, given the political climate today, mm -hmm. I, I, I just couldn't help but see the comparison. Oh, yeah. And, um, and how, how vitally um, relevant it is, mm -hmm. and how much uh, people have asked you, have they asked you about that? Yeah. Uh, this very subject is covered in the epilogue. I go into great detail. I'll bring it up to date. 
uh, today's uh, climate of, of, of scapegoating and demonization of people of color and people of uh, uh, other ethnic groups. Um, as I was writing this book, uh, Charlottesville broke out, I believe it was 2017. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me, these uh, white nationalists uh, marching into Charlottesville with the torches, chanting, Jews will not replace us, would have felt right at home in Wilmington in 1898. And in 1898, you had newspapers with this incitement campaign of, of scapegoating uh, African Americans, and I see it again today in, in social media. Uh, one example, uh, in 1898, Alex Manley, in addition to receiving death threats, was repeatedly told to go back to Africa. And just this summer, we had three American congresswomen of color told to go back to their home countries. Uh, in uh, 1898, uh, white voters were told that uh, uh, black men were coming to rape your women and steal your jobs. Uh, in 2015, a certain presidential candidate rode down an escalator and announced that uh, Mexican criminals and rapists, to use that term, were coming across the border to steal your job. So this is very, very much alive today, and it, it really concerns me um, that some political leaders today are doing what Josephus Daniels did in 1898, and is that is preying on and playing on this underlying white resentment and fear and insecurity and I think it's been there all along this last 122 years, and he really lit the fire and, and brought it out in, on, the, on the surface, and it's in public, and it's, it's very brazen now. I mean, it's not as, as nakedly racist as it was in 1898, but that undercurrent is there. I mean, for example, um, I believe it was last summer or the summer before, uh, maybe it was last summer, Trump announced that there was a Hispanic invasion coming across the border, and in August, a white gunman in El Paso at the Walmart, you all remember this, he, he selected only Hispanics to shoot and kill. He killed 22 Hispanics. They, he told the police later that he did it because he wanted to stop this Hispanic invasion. So you can see the connection. I mean, you can't prove that, you know, that Trump's uh, tweets directly led to this massacre, but there certainly is that air of uh, demonization and dehumanization in the air the same way it was in 1898. I, I hope that answers your question. But anyway, th some of this is in the book. I'm here today because I saw this glowing uh, critique of your book oh, okay. in the New York Times. And Eddie Glade, who I see quite often mm -hmm. on YouTube, right. uh, wrote it. Uh, but something, um, and also uh, my father was a printer for the Inquirer and for the Public Ledger when wow. he came to this country from uh, Latvia as a child now uh, and he only went to eighth grade but uh, he, he became a printer now I just saw right before I came in here a very disturbing incident there was a lady uh, she happened to be uh, Asian American and mm -hmm. she was trying to give these newspapers away with writing from students from uh, University of Pennsylvania hmm. and student after student just walked by her and just would not take it. Mm -hmm. And the only people as I was walking by was an African-American man took it and I took it. And I said to her, would you give me some of the papers and I'll ask the director of Kelly Writer's House if she'll put them mm -hmm. in, in the uh, building. So uh, it's very disheartening 
to see that students are just bypassing these opportunities to read the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as you know, as everyone knows, we're in two in camps. We're in the liberal camp and the conservative camp, and, and we seek out uh, news and opinion that fits our own preconceived notions. And I think uh, liberals do it. Uh, conservatives certainly do it. And I think this just feeds on itself. And um, no one really wants to look into the truth and the facts. And you have a president who says the mainstream media uh, is enemy of the people, don't believe any of this stuff you read in the papers. And that really undermines just one of the fundamental tenets of democracy, which is the First Amendment and the news, however it is provided. Uh, and I think the mainstream media is, is terrific. They cite their sources. Uh, they correct their errors. They, they, they try to be uh, as fair as possible, I believe. And here they are under constant daily attack by the President of the United States. For those just joining us, this is a February 2020 interview with American journalist David Zucchino about his winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy. The moderator for this event is Dr. Richard Pullman, Pulitzer writer in residence at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Yes, your question. Yes. Um, do you know if your alma mater has taken any steps to remove <laughs> the names of these white supremacists involved in the Wilmington incident from their dorm buildings yeah. and administration? Are there any student uh, oh, gosh. Um, pushes about Well, that. first of all, I went to, to school in Saunders Hall, and Saunders was named after the head of the Ku Klux Klan in the entire state of North Carolina. He was from Wilmington, one of the supporters of the white supremacy movement. There were years and years of protests. Finally, in 2015, they changed the name to Carolina Hall. Now, Keenan Stadium. Um, the money for the stadium and to the university was given by uh, this, this William Buck Keenan, the guy who was on the, on the machine gun crew, his son, who wasn't even born at the time of the right, who became a very rich industrialist and gave money to UNC. Uh, in the name of his father, so the stadium was named for Keenan Sr., uh, just Last year, um, the, I had talked to a student at the student newspaper and told her about this in the book. She wrote a story, and everything went crazy, and the university immediately named the stadium for Junior. It's still Keenan Stadium, <laughs> but it's named for Junior, the guy who gave the money, and it's not named for Senior. So um, has, there's another incident that's gotten a lot of national coverage. There's a statue called Silent Sam on the campus. And it's, uh, it was put up in 1913 in memory of the students from the university who fought and died for the Confederacy. It's been an enormously emotional issue there. There have been protests for years. There's been clashes between neo-Confederates and student protesters. In 2018, the students uh, at night rose up, tore the statue down, crushed it. Uh, the university hauled it off to storage, and they tried to decide what to do with it. And this got coverage in the New York Times and Washington Post. It got a lot of coverage. Well, the night before Thanksgiving, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, unbeknownst to anyone, uh, five members of the UNC Board of Governors, five very white conservatives, cut a deal with the sons of Confederate veterans who did not own the statue, had no legal standing in court. They cut a deal, and they said, we will give you $2.5 million if you'll file a suit against us, and then we'll immediately settle the suit. That afternoon, they filed the suit. They went before a judge. The judge 
settled the suit with $2.5 million given to this group of neo-Confederates on the promise that they would not uh, put up the statue in any of the 14 counties that has a UNC campus. In addition, they gave him $74,999, that number will be important, I'll tell you in a minute, uh, for them to promise not to parade on campus anymore, to stay off campus with all their neo-Confederate and Confederate flags. The reason it was that amount, if it was 75,000, they would have had to report it to the state attorney general, who's a Democrat. So uh, at five o'clock on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, they make the announcement figuring, you know, that's, that's the dead zone, nobody's gonna notice. Well, on Monday morning, people went crazy. There were protests all over campus. The, the, the faculty rebelled. Uh, donors, small and large, said we're not giving any more money to the university. So the university is now in the middle of figuring what to do about this. There have been suits filed uh, to overturn this settlement. And so it's a very emotional issue. And this statue has a direct connection to 1898. Uh, there's a man named Julian Shakespeare Carr, who was a rich industrialist. Uh, there's a town of Carborough next to Chapel Hill named after him. Uh, he was one of the founders of the American Tobacco Company and Bull Durham, rich guy. He was a huge supporter of the white supremacy campaign. And in fact, he loaned the money to Josephus Daniels to buy the News Observer. Huge white supremacist supported the campaign. He gave the speech dedicating the statue in 1913. Remember, it's supposed to be uh, a tribute to this, the students who died in the war, but in fact, he made it clear it was a tribute to white supremacy. He gave a speech talking about how these soldiers had died to save white supremacy in North Carolina, to save the Anglo-Saxon race, and he also mentioned that when he came back from the war in 1865, that he horsewhipped, that was the term he used, a Negro wench, that was the term, whipped this woman until her skirt hung in shreds because upon the streets of this quiet village she had maligned a white lady. And he said it, that he was proud of it. And so this was all part of the speech in 1913. And you can see why I come Today, uh, there's such emotion around this statue, particularly, as you can imagine, among African-American students. Um, so the issue is unresolved. It's still in storage. Uh, whether this deal goes through, I don't know, but it's, it's a very emotional issue right now. Um, I was wondering, since you said that some of the newspapers were kind of involved in <coughs> retelling the story over time right. in textbooks, as you were doing research for the book, how did you where did you go looking for you know, the truth, and how right. did you eliminate sources that didn't tell the right story? Right, yeah, that's a good question. Um, fortunately, I live outside Chapel Hill, and uh, there's a, a library called Wilson Library on campus, which uh, has the Southern Historical Collection and the North Carolina Collection. They had reams and reams and reams of documents, so uh, it was close to home. I spent a lot of time there. Um, there were, you know, documents at the National Archives about McKinley and his failure to do anything about it. Um, there were documents in Wilmington, but um, I'm a journalist, you know, like Dick, I'm used to interviewing people about events that had just happened or I witnessed events myself. And this was a completely new experience for me. Everything in here came from a piece of paper. So I just looked through thousands and thousands of pieces of paper, and a lot of it was left by the white supremacists. They were very proud of this, and they bragged about it in memoirs and in uh, newspaper stories uh, and in oral histories. And I had to 
really weed through that to get to the truth because there was so much propaganda there. But I also had an extensive newspaper coverage, which was slanted uh, towards the white supremacist point of view, but the facts and the events were true. And my big concern was that I would not have enough from the black point of view, and that was more difficult to get at, because as you can imagine, they were running for their lives in 1898. The black newspaper was burned, all the archives were burned, so there was no record. Fortunately, uh, there were several people who left memoirs. There was a, a Reverend Kirk who barely escaped with his life. Uh, he was a black minister there who was targeted for attack. He escaped but wrote a, a long memoir. Alex Manley's uh, widow uh, in, 19, in the 1950s wrote a series of heartbreaking letters to her sons about what had happened and had a lot of incredible detail. Uh, there was a black lawyer named William Henderson who uh, barely escaped with his family. He was given 24 hours to shut down his law office, sell his house, and, and escape. He wrote a, a long memoir, which was given to me by his great-granddaughter. Um, also, um, two black legislators in, in the state legislature from Wilmington passed a bill uh, to set up a state commission to investigate uh, what really happened uh, in 1898, and they spent five years, and they came up with a 400 and some page gigantic report that was full of citations that I could follow to go back and get original documents. So there's a lot of stuff out there. The problem was, first of all, getting it all, and then making sense of it and trying to put it into a narrative that somebody might want to read, because um, this is a lot of paper and a lot of disparate events, and so the trick is, you know, to to build it into a narrative that makes sense and that flows. For those who are joining us, this is a February 2020 interview with American journalist David Zucchino about his winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898, and the Rise of White Supremacy. The moderator for this event is Dr. Richard Pullman, Pulitzer Writer-in-Residence at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Reminds me of the Tulsa mm -hmm. riots, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. Um, how many other stories are yeah, out yeah. there that are buried like this? Would you say that perhaps all 50 states have some sort of? I would think so. At least. I, w I would think so, and I'm sure the southern states, uh, because during this whole period after Reconstruction, the so-called redeemers, who were white supremacists redeeming the South for white supremacy, were very, very active, uh, not, in North, not just in North Carolina, but across the South. And there were many, many, many examples of, of blacks being murdered and in intimidated, and I'm sure all those stories haven't been told, and there are probably stories around the rest of the country that haven't been told. So I think a lot of it's out there because um, we as a country don't really like to, to face the ugliest chapters in our history, and, and that's one reason I wanted to do this book, is to confront it and, and to correct the historical record. Well, so the last question, um, actually, this is appropriate last question in a way. Uh, so a lot of it is really about people, um, also, it's about Americans confronting their past. Right. People whose families were involved in Correct. this uh, massacre confronting their pasts. Mm -hmm. And toward the end of the book, as any of you read it, I hope you will, uh, you have a sit-down interview uh, with the grandson of Josephus Daniels, wow. uh, who by that point was a retired ex-publisher of the uh, News and Observer mm -hmm. newspaper. 
Um, and you're asking him all these questions, and he's kind of saying, well, you know, I'm not going to apologize for my, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to par- par- apologize for my grandfather, you know, he was, he was of his time, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and a lot of blacks weren't educated then, <laughs> and so the thought was then that you wanted to have educated people in office, well, why weren't they educated? You know that. <laughs> That's another story. Um, but, but the thing that struck me most uh, was, uh, first of all, the way you wrote it, which was very straightforward, you know, mm. you're not editorializing on this guy, this guy, you just basically let him, right. you know, expose his own thinking. But then the last part of this interview was, I guess you asked him, or at least the way you wrote it, you asked him, had he read that North Carolina Commission report? And what did he think right, of exactly. the North Carolina Commission report? And he said, I, I never read it. <laughs> it was just an amazing and, interview. And you just let that hang out there yeah, at the end of the yeah. section. And I, I kind of took that as really the challenge for, mm-hmm. you know, for everybody else going forward. Right. In, in this, um, country. this man was Frank Daniels Jr. And when I worked at the News Observer, he was the publisher. So I knew him. I worked for him. He was my boss for five years. And of course, I never mentioned what his grandfather was up to. And he was very gracious. He gave me plenty of time. But as Dick said, he said, my grandfather was a man of his time. You know, blacks didn't have enough education uh, to, to, to serve in office or, or to vote. He did what he, was right, what he thought was right at the time, whatever the paper stood for then. Uh, it doesn't stand for that now, but it was a very illuminating interview. And I should mention today, the News and Observer is a very editorially, very liberal uh, a paper, very progressive, mm-hmm. and they have been attacking white conservatives in the state legislature who have passed uh, voter suppression laws, the voter ID laws that have been overturned by the courts. And in fact, one court said the voter ID uh, law targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. precision. Uh, In 1898, uh, the whites used gerrymandering to pack the blacks into two wards to dilute their votes. Today, white conservatives in North Carolina are packing them into these gerrymandered districts, both on the uh, congressional level and the state level, and state courts have thrown those out as unconstitutional uh, racial gerrymanders in violation of the 14th Amendment, and the Supreme Court just last year upheld it, so they have to redraw those districts. But that just tells you uh, how they're using some of the same uh, maneuvers as they did in 1898 to suppress the black vote, and it's, and it's very open, open and blatant. Um, Frank Daniels Jr. Uh, is not part of this. As I said, when he was the publisher, the paper, and, and it still is today, is, is very liberal, uh, basically mainstream Democrat on the editorial page. And what's interesting, after the Daniels family sold the paper, uh, I believe it was 1995, to uh, McClatchy, uh, in 2006, they wrote a 12-part series that laid out what really happened. Uh, they had a historian write it, um, and on the editorial page, they apologized profusely for Josephus Daniels. Wow. So I give them credit for that. But it wasn't the Daniels family that did it. It was McClatchy. And the Charlotte Observer did the same well, thing. Well, the, the fight continues. So yeah. thank you, David, for giving thank us you guys. more ammo. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's it for episode 24, Read and Succeed. Fall is here. Looking forward to more time inside to read the upcoming cycle of national and international award winners. It's not about the books, it's about you. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.